good morning, everyone. My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here at Mill City. I see some new faces. Thank you for joining us. I know it takes a lot of courage to come to a new community for the first time. We'd love a chance to meet you, like uh, Pastor Adobe said, so please let us do that. Uh, but we are going to continue a conversation we've been having these last few weeks as we've stepped into this new year called New Beginnings, and it's from the book of Acts. I often think of the book of Acts as the Acts of the Holy Spirit because when you read through this story, it's the birth of the early church. We just sang about that. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit lit this flame that started this movement called the church that we're still participating in today. And when you look at that story, you can see that the Holy Spirit is doing things and these humans are just trying to keep up with that. It's a lot of what I want to talk about today. And when you think about new beginnings, uh, what we recognize in this story and in our lives is that it's not that there's a whole new story as much as it's a new chapter in the story that God's telling. And so when we look at the story of God, we see that God's been telling the story and then this powerful new beginning of the birth of the church that we see depicted here in Acts in the, towards the beginning of the New Testament. And we're following these stories and these new beginnings. And one of the things that's true about new beginnings is that they usually start or are, are started in some form by the decisions that are made by an individual or a group of people trying to figure out how to follow God and try to follow the Holy Spirit, one decision at a time. So that's why I invited you to think about a decision that you've made in your life recently. And so some of you might have gone with, a, you know, more like general decisions like this morning, what you ate for breakfast. Others of you might have been like, there's a big decision that we experienced and the person sitting next to you now is like, we need to talk about that more after we're done. So I thought this would be a great excuse to share with you a, a decision that my husband and I recently made, and that is that we got a puppy. Yep, yep, yep. Brought us some pictures, because why not? Why not? We're those kind of dog parents. Just We just accept it. Uh, this is Story O'Brien. She's 10 weeks old. She's a Springer Spaniel. And uh, she is a lot of energy. Springer Spaniels are a lot of energy. Uh, we named her Story after my husband and my shared passion for storytelling. And um, I don't know if we thought we didn't have enough going on in our lives right now. Or like, just... It was like January 17th, we brought her home. We thought maybe this is a great time to take a puppy out every couple of hours or hour. And I just want you to know that negative 13 degrees at 3 a.m. feels way colder for the 3 a.m. pee time. But when those little feet hit that snow, boom, she pees. So, see, it's a deep community time question. We just got into some details together. Anyway, so the puppy, you know, that is, that's a big decision, but I still wouldn't say it's like life-altering, like the deepest, most life-altering, life-trajectory-changing decisions. But did you know that research suggests that we make 35,000 decisions a day? Isn't that crazy? And many of them, of course, we make without thinking about it that much. Uh, what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, what we're going to do, what we're going to say, what we're going to text, what we're not going to text, what we're going to say in the Zoom call, whether we're going to keep our camera on. Like, this, the list goes on, right? There's so many things that we decide that we don't even think about. But then, in our lives, there's also the big decisions, the life-altering ones, the ones that really change uh, the tra trajectories of our lives. And all of us have decisions across that spectrum, don't we? Think about those in your life, maybe in the past, maybe what you're thinking about currently. The last few years have been so unusual. Um, did you notice how I didn't say unprecedented? Because people are like, don't say that. You're welcome. <laughs> the last few years have been so unusual that it just feels like there's this, I'm hearing from you all that, that, that there's Troublemaking decisions that we've never faced in the same way. I'm hearing people talk about things like decision fatigue and just how tiring it feels because you're making newer decisions and there's different things you're facing. I've heard about analysis paralysis. This idea of like, well, I just, I'm analyzing what to do and then you find, kind of feel stuck and you don't know what to do next. I've also heard what I call decision doom. 
That's the and this is maybe just some of us, myself included, where there you get in your head that there's only one right answer, right? Like there's all the decisions, but there's a perfect one, and I've got to find that one. And if I don't get that, everything's gonna come crumbling down. Some people are nervous, laughing. Pray for them. So here's here it is the th the things that we're facing in the in this new time, and so. I feel like it brings up this important question in our lives as Jesus followers. What does it mean to make spirit-led decisions, to enter into spirit-led discernment in our lives? Maybe not in the little decisions about what we're going to wear, but about what we're going to do, how we're going to step into our everyday life, how we're going to notice what God is doing around us. How do we follow the Holy Spirit in our lives the way we see the early church following the Spirit in these stories? I mean, when you look at the examples throughout Scripture, they're pretty wide, aren't they? You've got, like, a bush that starts talking to somebody. You've got, like, a creepy hand. Do you know this story in, in Daniel 5, I think it is, where this, like, hand shows up and starts writing on a wall? No, thank you. Like, no, no, that's creepy. And, but there's all these ways that God speaks, and, and so it makes us ask this question in our lives now. There's a diversity of how God speaks to all of us. And so the question we have today is, what does it look like for us? What might it look for us, like for us as individuals? What might it look like for us as a church? As a church community, those of you who are visiting, we just came from a really big decision where together we discerned that two churches would become one, that Elam alumni have joined us as Mil at Mill City Church now, and that was a huge decision. Changed lives in a lot of ways. And I don't think anybody saw a creepy hand to tell us to do that. But I do believe the Holy Spirit was leading us. Nobody's houseplants caught fire, I don't think. If you did, you need to tell me that. But God was leading us, and, and it was in different ways for different people. Sometimes dreams and, and pictures. Sometimes it was through scripture, song, a sense, a peace, lots of different ways. So here's the question I want us to pursue today. What does spirit-led discernment and decision-making look like today? Because I believe that God is alive and active in our lives. That God didn't set the world in motion and then walk away but that God is in the midst of what's going on in our everyday lives. The Holy Spirit cares about our lives and what's happening and about how the church moves forward together and how families move forward together. I believe that God cares about that. And I, I really have this sense that as we go into the rest of this year, there are things that the Spirit wants to do in our lives and lead us towards that are significant and exciting. And there's things that we're going to be unexpected and some of them will be hard, but that God is still doing something. And that's why this question means so much for us today. What does spirit-led discernment and decision-making look like? And how do we overcome the decision doom and the decision fatigue and the analysis paralysis? So today I want to look at one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. It's in Acts 16. If you have a Bible or an app or it'll be up on the screen. Um, Acts 16 is like one of my favorites but simultaneously kind of like my least favorite at the same time. I think you're going to see what I mean by that. Depending on what's going on in my life, I feel like this is awesome. I feel so known. Or I feel like this is terrible, how frustrating. They were frustrated then, I'm frustrated now. But we're all in it together. And I think that the stories that we see here help us understand how God's inviting us to listen and respond to what God's doing and how the Holy Spirit leads us through. In Acts 16, uh, we're in the midst of what some have come to call Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, Paul was an early leader in the early, in the early church, and he was uh, leading people through these journeys. And this Acts 16 is like considered his second missionary journey. And so as he's going through uh, this story, I, I always think about these stories, and I think about when I was a kid. Maybe not that young of a kid, maybe still 14, 15, and I'd just get really bored during the sermons. I'm so sorry. And uh, then I would go to the back of my Bible, and there's all these maps you know, they were super colorful. And I would find the one of Paul's missionary journeys, and it had all these colors on it. And I would trace the journey with my finger, and I'd think, oh, this is so fun. Oh, he went to this place. Oh, he's in the sea. That must have been in a boat. And that was a way for me to, to, get, to get through, you know. 
but I think that I might have unintentionally internalized something. I think I might have unintentionally internalized that at some point, when I was an adult, God was going to give me a map, just like he gave Paul. Of course, you don't get a map. Paul did not get a map. Those lines were drawn after Paul's missionary journeys. Also, those missionary journeys covered a long period of time. It wasn't like a summer road trip that Paul went on to Antioch. You know, so I, I had some misunderstandings. And so as I became an adult, I thought, you know, where, where's my map? And here I am standing now knowing there is no map. There is no map. And that's frustrating and daunting in some ways. And I think that what we have to recognize is that that's not what they were experiencing either, right? They didn't have a map. They didn't know where to go. And I think this story really helps us see that. And we have to remember, too, that unlike our context today, for most of us, they were in very dangerous territory as they traveled around. Uh, later on in this chapter, we're not going to get there, but Paul and Silas end up in prison. There's people who are coming after them, attacking them for talking about Jesus. And so here we enter the story, Acts 16, verse 6. Imagine the map in your mind, okay? Think about these, what you're hearing here, but imagine the map in your mind. 16, verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, just pause. It sounds nice here, the way that Luke wrote this, but this group was having a little bit of trouble discerning. Would you see that in the story? They're, they're trying to figure out what to do. They traveled through these different regions, what then was called the province of Asia, and the text says that the Holy Spirit prevented them from going in. And then it says that they prevented them from going to Bithynia. Now, if you look at this map, look at this map. See where I circled it? See that red line? It's like they were forced to stay on the border. They couldn't go down into Asia. They couldn't go up into Bithynia. And what many scholars would say is that it would have been so strategic for them to do that. It didn't make any sense to pass by important places and, and to, to, spend, to not spend time in places like Thyatira or going up into Bithynia. These would have been strategic places for the gospel to be spread. So you see why they were trying to go there. But it says that God was not letting them do that. I mean, they traveled at least 100 miles out of their way sometimes just to find out that that's not where God was leading them. Can you imagine? Maybe you can. In your life, I, I've experienced things like this. The scripture says the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter Bithynia. Now, I wish there was a little bit more explanation there. Okay, just think about that. Like, what do they mean by this? Did they not have peace about it? It's like they got to the border and they like there was like a, a, I don't know, they couldn't go through? Or was it like Jesus showed up in like a hologram, like Princess Leia style, and was just like, you can't go here. So the thing is, is that we, we don't have that detail. So I choose to believe the Star Wars hologram, obviously. <laughs> you can choose whatever you want, but that's where I'm going to go. God was telling them not what to do, but actually leading them by not letting them do something. And I get that that's frustrating, but you see that here in the story. Notice they didn't sit still and pout when it seemed like a door wasn't opened. All oh, that might have happened, but that wasn't in the details either. But they got up and they kept going. And when a door didn't open and doesn't seem like, you know, no offense to the cliche, but it didn't seem like any windows were opening either. Like, it, they just kept going. And they traveled another hundred miles up that border 
down to uh, the city called Troas, a port city on the, uh, the coast of the Aegean Sea. Finally, finally, that night, they received a sign from God that actually seemed like something God was saying what they should do, not just what they should not do. And I just want to pause here and say this resonates with me so deeply. There's so many times in my life when I have, you know, I've never traveled by foot on, or a caravan 100 miles out of the way. But it feels like there's been times in my life when doors have just slammed in my face when I thought, come on, this is perfect. This is strategic. This is right. This is good. I look back on my life and I resonate with this idea of, of things being shut down. And I've never seen like a hologram of Jesus or Princess Leia or Obi-Wan Kenobi or anybody, but I have felt like I was walking for days on end just to hit a dead end and not feel like there was anywhere to go when it comes to the direction I've searched for in my life. And I feel encouraged that that was what happened for them as well. And I hope you can too. Paul finally has this dream of a man from a region across the sea in Macedonia asking for help, right? This dream, this vision. Help us, Paul of Tarsus. You're our only hope. Sorry, I had to do that. I mean... Come on, Star Wars. Somebody's like, I don't care about that, move on. So that's the last Star Wars. That was the last Star Wars reference, I think. He woke up, Paul wakes up in the middle of the night after he has this dream, and he gets on this boat, and he heads to Macedonia with all of his friends. And I just think, you know, it could seem kind of rude. Like, why didn't he just wait till morning? But the thing is, when you feel like God has not said anything for a while, if you think that it might be God, you got to get moving. And so he comes down, he gets his friends. I think I would have done the same they, it says in verse 11 that they made it across the sea, but nobody was waiting for them to help, so they kind of moved from town to town. And then they did something that is a pattern. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see this pattern time and time again. As they had come from this Jewish culture, they had a value of finding places to pray multiple times a day to connect with God and to listen to what God might be saying. And so here in the story, we see something similar in verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Let me just pause there for a second. Some of us, myself included, have wondered at times, if we have all these set times for prayer, is it going to become kind of rigid or like rote? Or like maybe we're going to have these strict prayer rituals and it's just going to feel like we're weighed down. And I think that that can happen. But what we see so often in this story and in the story of, of God is that these daily prayer times, this time of orienting your heart towards God changed everything, but not every day, right? <laughs> Some days it was just a thing you did because it was a good thing to do. That's all right. But what would have happened if they wouldn't have found the place to pray? Well, let's find out. Because when, when they went to pray, I mean, many times probably nothing supernatural happened. But on this day when they went to pray, something really powerful happens. They meet some unexpected people in an unexpected place. So once again, they're in a river. They went down to buy a river, not to a synagogue or something like that. And this is what it says in verse 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, this is a powerful thing. They're going to this place of prayer. It's not a synagogue or temple at this time. There probably wasn't enough Jewish people to have had that. But they go to a river that symbolized life. And there were already a group of women there who were trying to figure out how to worship Yahweh, but they weren't people coming necessarily from a Jewish background. And, and there's this group of women there. They start talking about Jesus, and Lydia 
which we can tell from the context here. If she's a dealer in purple cloth, she oversees a very successful business. The purple is the clue because purple cloth was for wealthy people. And so Lydia is, is leading a successful business and she's among all of these people and it's God that opens up Lydia's heart. You see how it was God's spirit that opens Lydia's heart and her and her whole household were baptized and became Jesus followers. Similar to last week when Joe talked about Cornelius and how the whole household of Cornelius became Jesus followers. Here's a, a, a clue, though, for us. Because when we think of household, you know, that's J.D. and myself, our housemaid and two dogs. That's not what this means in this context, okay? A household, oikos in Greek, like the yogurt, yes, it, it doesn't mean a nuclear family. It doesn't even necessarily mean an extended family. It's kind of like an economic system of people. Most of these homes had compounds that had multiple dwellings. And so the people who were a part of Lydia's household were probably some people related to her, people who were servants or staff of hers that maybe didn't even all live in the compound, but they were all considered a part of the household. So this could be about 120 plus people. Who knows? And what we know is when this word household, I just want that to click in your head, we're talking about an economic system a group of people who relied on each other for their well-being. And they, some of them lived on the compound, maybe some of them didn't. So let's think back. Think back to the discernment that they had in Troas in the port city. Paul has a vision, but what was the vision? It was about a man from Macedonia. They get to Macedonia, and instead they find a woman in the fashion industry. I mean, just, just think about this for a minute. If he was you... And you get there and you're with Paul, you're like, did Paul get that wrong? Or like, what happened there? But they aren't worried about that, it doesn't seem. They're trying to stay in step with what the Spirit of God is doing. And when we think about the fact that Lydia and her household are people that are probably a part of a more elite part of society, when we think about this, we start to realize, well, this is significant that God brought them to her. So why didn't God just give Paul a vision of Lydia in the first place? We don't know about that either, but here's my... I, I'm just giving you guys my opinion today. So my opinion is that if Paul would have come down in the middle of the night and been like to most, a group of mostly men and said, hey, I had a dream about a woman, a rich woman, a rich lady, I think they'd have been like, Paul, go back to sleep. We'll see you in the morning. But it was, it was about this man from Macedonia. And what we know is that it's not that he got it wrong, but that God was trying to get them to move. And they did. They moved towards this place. And if they would have missed it because they thought, well, sorry, lady, move on. We're looking for a man from Macedonia. Something significant would have shifted because what happened here is that many people call Lydia like the gateway to Europe. She's one of the first people in that region where the gospel began to spread. And what we see is that church that started in Philippi out of her home, this compound, it flourished. Lydia's a church planter, one of the very first. So much happened because of her willingness to be listened to God and to respond to what God had done in her heart. It's so easy to see how Lydia's resources and partnership were critical in the success to what happened in the way that Christianity spread throughout Europe at that time. Look at what Dr. Willie Jennings says in his commentary about her. Like Cornelius, Lydia is a person of power and prestige. She's a wealthy businesswoman, and she finds herself a harbinger of the new, a wealthy woman whose center of operation has been given over to the Spirit of God. Here is power put to good use. Do you see how people who are moving fabric through could also move a message through? I mean, it's amazing what happens. And in the end, many men from Macedonia were changed by Jesus because of Lydia and all the people who were a part of her household. It wasn't just one, like the vision. Paul could have missed it. 
if he was so concerned about, it wasn't fortune telling, it was God getting them to move, right? When they didn't hear anything from God, they kept moving. I like to call this discernment through movement. Discernment through movement. Sometimes we spend time in prayer and we sit still and we listen to God, so good. But I also think that when we're in, on the move, we can see what God's doing around us if we pay attention. Not only in times when we might pause to pray. Discernment through movement. When, they seemed, when it seemed like God was stopping them, they didn't force it. When it seemed like God was leading them, they moved forward. And they followed, they, went, they moved towards anything that seemed like God. In our lives, when there's something that seems like it could be God, let's move towards it and wonder about that and be curious about it. Because they believed that God's Spirit was constantly moving. This was 20 years after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, but they still believed that the Spirit of God was moving in their midst. Here's some things I notice about how these folks responded. What did they do? What didn't they do? Okay, Let's start with what they didn't do. They didn't keep going when it seemed like the Spirit told them no. The temptation to force it because it was the plan we had or what we thought was supposed to happen is so strong. But when they felt like the Spirit was saying no, they didn't force it and they didn't give excuses like, but it would be strategic to go to Bithynia. Strategic. They didn't force it. They didn't give up and they didn't stop trying just because they felt like they were hitting a lot of closed doors. And they didn't assume that a dream or a vision or a word from God was like a crystal ball telling the future. They just assumed, hey, if this might be God, we got to move. And they went for it with courage. What did they do? They were sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They weren't afraid of what I call trial and learn. Uh, one of my friends, some of you know her, Steph Lucky, she always used to say, I hate trial and error. That's the worst. I want to do trial and succeed. She'd always talk about that. And I'd be like, Steph, that's not how it works. It's, it's probably not always trial and error either, though. What if you looked at it as trial and learn? What is God trying to show us? That's what I think I see in the story. They're moving from place to place, and it's not trial and error. It's trial and learn. What else did they do? They kept moving when they sensed that it was from God. And they were open to God using people that they didn't expect. Because I promise you, in the first century, they were not expecting Lydia. That wouldn't have been on the list of church planters that they would have considered. Yet she had opened up the gospel to so many people. And so maybe the main point that I hope you take with you today is this. Spirit-led discernment and decision-making is when we deliberately look for what God is doing and join in. When we make that choice deliberately, spirit-led discernment and decision-making is when we deliberately look for what God is doing and join in. Now, our stories as individuals or as families or as a church, they're not the same as the first century. I know that. But I wonder if there's some patterns that we see happening in this story and others that might be encouraging to us as we think about discernment and decision-making and following the Holy Spirit. Of course, I have summarized them into three things we can learn. You're welcome. Three things. It's always three. The first thing I think is true is that they accepted that there wasn't a road map. There wasn't a map ahead of time. And they had to rely on the Spirit. Could we accept that there isn't a roadmap and we have to rely on the Spirit? Because I still act like someday I'm going to open the glove compartment and there's going to be the map like in the back of the Bible and I just got to follow that. And the truth is if I got that map, I'd probably be freaked out, put it back in there, shut it, and not want to think about it. Because when we do know some of the things that God would do when you look back on your life, you probably would have been a little resistant. I think that if we can recognize we're not going to get a map we're not going to get a triptych. People remember that? People my age? You know, you pages of how to, where to go and where to turn. That is not going to happen. 
We're not going to get a GPS on our phone and any of that stuff for how to follow the Holy Spirit. Once we can say that that is not true, we can start to open our mind and heart to the ways that the Spirit does lead us and does guide us step by step, day by day. The second thing I think we see is that the Holy Spirit gets your attention at expected times, but also unexpected times. In this story and throughout the book of Acts, you see this. You see there, it was unexpected that Paul was going to wake up in the middle of the night and get everybody on a ship. That was unexpected. But when they went to a place of prayer and ran into Lydia, that was a time when they were expecting to hear from God. They were looking for what God was doing in a posture of expectancy of prayer. Lydia was at a place of prayer. They went to a place of prayer. They prioritized that even on their journey. We can choose to make space in our lives on the regular to connect with God, to turn towards God. It doesn't even have to be for a set amount of time. Regular opportunities in our life. And many times it can seem so uneventful if we're honest. But what happens the times when God wants to do something? What about the times when God wants to introduce us to something potentially life-changing? How many times had Lydia shown up to that place of prayer before this encounter shifted the trajectory of her entire life, so much so that it changed the story that we're still talking about her thousands of years later? How many times had she showed up and it was nothing but a river? The reality is that God is moving around us all the time, inviting us and beckoning us to join in and inviting us as individuals, inviting us as a community. And I just want to call something out, and I've, I've said this before too, but have you noticed that sometimes in Christian culture we say something like, God really showed up in that situation. God really showed up in that worship service. And here's the thing that I think we need to flip the script in our mind a little bit because we can trust that God is here. God is present in your everyday spaces where you live and work and learn and live. God is present in our relationships. The question is not will God show up, but will we show up to God? The Spirit is moving around us, and we grow in the ability to listen and respond, but it takes time, and it takes intentionality and deliberate looking for what God is doing. Third, I think we see we have to take it one step at a time. Some of you are like me, and my personality is like, what about... One giant leap at a time, or a running start, or I don't know. But the reality of life is, it's one step at a time. God didn't give us a map because God wants this relationship with us one day at a time. And I often think of the way we can break it down into one day at a time is through this idea of experimenting. Experimenting. One day at a time. So in 2021, I I wrote this book that came out, Make a Move. Uh, The subtitle is How to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions in a Disorienting World. Now, I actually decided to write this book in 2019. Think about this with me, okay? And I didn't actually start writing it until spring of 2020. And I had no idea what a disorienting world was in 2019 when I picked that subtitle and sure did know something different about that in 2020. And then it came out in 2021. And we've got copies for you for free. The only reason you write something like this is to help people. So you can take some at the connection table if you want. But the reason I bring it up today is because in the book, I just talk a lot about experiments. Because I've had this conversation with so many people, I was like, I just need to write this down. And and what I notice about this idea of experimenting is that it's something that we have to choose to do because what we want is a strategic plan, right? The map idea. I just want a plan that I can stick to. But I actually think experimenting is what we see here in this example. And uh, if you don't want the book, there's also a millcitychurch.com slash blog. Go there. There's a toolkit for decision-making, talking about experimenting, especially if any of you are like, there's a big decision coming up in my life right now. I just want to give you that gift. Uh, Please head there. 
If you experiment, what does it do? It gets you to make a move, one step at a time. And so let me just, I'm not a scientist, so some of you are scientists, so just, if I have the scientific method wrong here, something, don't tell me. We'll deal with it later. It's already in a book. It's too late. So here's the five, here's the five steps. Very, very simple, simple version. Define your question. Sometimes the question beneath the questions are actual question. Think about that. What is the research? How do we pay attention to what's going on around us? Determine the first experiment, the first thing you're going to try. It might be very small. And then name the steps of your experiment and analyze and review. Anybody who is a part of experimenting knows the analyze and review part is really important. I think we see steps like this happening throughout Acts, where they're trying things and seeing what happens, and they're reviewing and learning and talking together and praying, and they're taking it one step at a time. It keeps us moving so that we can see how the Spirit might be leading. Here's two questions that we have just focused on since near the beginning of Mill City. Okay, I'm going to put it up here for you on the screen. What is God up to, and how can we join in? That's maybe like a corporate question. To make that more personal, perhaps the question is, what is God saying, and how might I respond? What's God saying and moving in my life? That toolkit talks about different ways that you might listen to God. It can be so tempting to try to find the perfect will of God, isn't it? But what if not only this idea of the will of God is true, but the way of Jesus that we see here in the story, this way and this posture of following what God is doing, listening and responding and joining in, rather than hoping that God's going to bless what we're already going to do because we've decided it's the plan. If we ask these guiding questions in our lives on a daily basis, I really believe that it will help us to have spirit-led decision-making and discernment. That main point I have for you today, spirit-led discernment and decision-making is when we deliberately look for what God is doing and we join in. It's so tempting to think about a strategic plan, isn't it? Do you know that you can pay church consultants like big bucks to give you a strategic plan for your church? Like here's your five-year plan, good luck. Here's your 10-year plan, you got this. Like you can pay a lot of money for that. Uh, and I, I get it. But when I look back 10 years ago from this church, if we would have had a strategic plan, it would have not included helping to birth one of the largest nonprofits that serves kids in the city, which is now Every Meal. Never would have been in our plan. Our plan would have been way too tiny. When I think about our five-year plan five years ago, we would not have included potentially running into a global pandemic, that's for sure. And we wouldn't have expected that even in the midst of that, our mission would be emboldened and we would double in people and mission and, and, and ministry and all the things that God is calling us to. We never would have seen that. And we definitely never would have had in our strategic plan an adoption merger and communities coming together and this idea of this, this new uh, you know, home base to be able to do mission from at 13th and Madison. That would have never been in the plan. I know that 135 years ago, when the, the six women who got together and started to pray about how they could start a new church that became Elam Church, they said, well, let's start a small business and we can sell our sewing and our materials. They never would have said, strategic plan, 135 years, more people than we could count will be touched by this community. They never would have had that strategic plan. And what I have learned is that if we choose a strategic plan, I will always choose something too small for God. Every strategic plan that I would have for my life or for our church would be too small for the kingdom of God and what God is doing. And so when we think about the next five years, the next ten years, instead of a strategic plan, I invite us to take a strategic posture, to have a strategic approach, to consistently say, God, what are you doing and how can we respond? And then we just have to have the courage to stay up and catch up with what God is doing. Spirit-led discernment and decision-making is when we deliberately Join in what God is doing. As the band comes up, I just want to give you 
uh, two things to take with you today, just two very simple things. When you think about the 35,000 decisions times all of you, that's a lot of decisions that are going to be made this week. I just want to encourage you, what if some of those decisions, there's an invitation to experiment with the Holy Spirit? And so, so head to that, that toolkit, millcitychurch.com blog. You can grab it there. I also think a little experiment could be, what are the spots in my life where I actually choose to turn towards God and listen to what God might be saying or doing in my life? Here's an experiment I want to invite you into. Uh, this might be times of prayer for you or whatever, but what if you took your phone and you set a timer every day that just had this question, it just brought up the question, what is God up to? I set mine at uh, 8.57, because that's usually between, before one of my meetings, three minutes to just turn my heart towards God and say, God, what are you doing today? Can you imagine how some days might completely change if that was the question that we asked? And what about gathering in prayer with other people? We've got our prayer times here. We'll put up on the screen for you. We've already got people gathering here at 9 o'clock at Las Estrellas every week. Monday through Friday at noon, there's a prayer call. Let us know. Just send an email. We'll get you that link where you can listen and pray, pause in the middle of your day. And many days, nothing supernatural might happen, but you never know what God might do in those moments. And so as we go into this time of worship, I just want to have uh, these questions. What is God up to? How can we join in? What is God saying? How might I respond? Just give you a minute as we posture our hearts in worship just to ask these questions in your own life right now. What is it that God might be saying to you individually as a family? What might you hear for our church as we think about the next steps God has for us in this new beginning?